from a tiny room in Oxford, Ohio, to one of the largest Greek letter organizations in the world, we are Sigma Chi, and this is the Sigma Chi Podcast with Wes Holsclaw. Welcome to the second edition of the Sigma Chi podcast. Thanks to each of you who downloaded or listened to our debut podcast with the one and only Keith Croc last month. It was great to learn of Brother Croc's Sigma Chi experience in depth and how our fraternity's values and ideals have helped shape his career. Today, we're bringing you a special episode with three interviews of Sigma Chi alums. We began in July prior to the inaugural Croc Transformational Leaders Workshop. A few members of our Sigma Chi marketing and communications team drove across four states. So we stopped in St. Louis, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, and our founding site in Oxford, Ohio, en route to Bowling Green for the awesome event. While in Oxford, I was able to sit down with our 20th Grand Historian, Eric Hansen, and discuss the history of our founding site the improvements and renovations that have been made to the site in recent years, and why the Southwest Ohio area is a must-visit for any Sigma Chi. I learned a great deal talking with Eric, and I think those of you who are interested in the storied history of our fraternity will enjoy what he has to say. The second half of our podcast begins a special series, SIGs in Washington, D.C. In May, I was able to sit down with eight of our current and former Sigma Chi congressmen, current and former leaders in government, and members of our national media who each have interesting Sigma Chi stories of their own. Presently on SigmaChi.org, under the News tab, our September 6th spotlight features our Q&A with President Barack Obama's speechwriter, Significant Sig Cody Keenan. In upcoming episodes, we will have interviews with members of Congress, the first Chief of Staff under the Clinton administration, Significant Sig Mac McLarty, former IRS Commissioner, Significant Sig John Koskinen, Colonel White House Legal Advisor, Significant Sig Johnny DiStefano, and many, many more. Today, we talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, significant SIG James Grimaldi of the Wall Street Journal, and Arizona Congressman Ruben Gallego, a Harvard graduate who has helped lead efforts on Capitol Hill to combat the social group sanctions implemented at his alma mater, Harvard. Last month, I was also fortunate to sit down and talk with a trio of great brothers in Los Angeles who have made great impacts in their respective fields. Former Paramount and Universal Television executive, significant order of Constantine Sig, Carrie McCluggage, whose efforts brought shows like Magnum P.I., The A-Team, Law and & Order, and many more to our screens. There was also the radio voice of the Los Angeles Lakers and co-host of the highest-rated sports talk show in Southern California, significant Sig John Ireland of ESPN Radio's Mason and Ireland. And lastly, we spoke with significant SIG author Mike Connolly, whose best-selling series highlighting Harry Bosch and others have become a, a, the centerpiece for a popular television series on Amazon Prime, as well as movies starring Matthew McConaughey and Clint Eastwood. Great, great stuff in the coming months here on the Sigma Chi podcast. Without further ado, after this short word from the Sigma Chi store, we bring you the first part of our Sigma Chi podcast with brother Eric Hansen. Created by brothers for brothers. 
the new Sigma Chi store is your one-stop shop for exclusive premium Sigma Chi apparel for both actives and alumni. Our dedicated team will help you build the perfect design for recruitment, intramurals, and all special events, including derby days. For a limited time only, spend $50 and receive a Sigma Chi flag for free. Get official Sigma Chi gear straight from the source. Visit store.sigmachi.org today. Thanks for coming to the Sigma Chi podcast. We're here in the founding site where it all began back in 1855. And you walk into this place and the work that's been done, uh, the renovation in the early 90s and the recent work with the foundation. This place is just a, it's a must see for anyone who is a Sigma Chi. Absolutely. There's a, there's a certain magnetism, I think, that, that you feel when you walk in. There's a, there's a reverence here that uh, you know that you're walking on the ground and in the building that our seven founders uh, created such a wonderful fraternity. Here in Oxford, a lot of things have changed. There's not a lot of original buildings that are still standing relevant to when the founders lived here. So what's the importance of how Sigma Chi and how we've preserved and been able to save this site in this town? Well, it's, it's, it's very important, not only for us as, as Sigma Chi uh, brothers, but it also had a very, still has very important relevance for the city of Oxford. Um, it, the, the, the city, the, the historical um, uh, department here worked with us extensively, uh, was very uh, encouraging um, and welcoming to make sure that we could actually bring it back to the way it was back in 1855. So when the uh when the site was purchased and, and handed over to the Sigma Chi Foundation, I know there was some some extensive work done in here. Can you kind of walk us through like a, some of the original items that were here with the founders and the wallpaper story was uh, quite quite awesome. Yes, and in the in the early 90s, it was decided to actually convert the founding site into a museum uh, dedicated to the founding of Sigma Chi, and obviously the the one room where Runkle and Caldwell actually. Um, lived where our badge was created. Um, that that garnered the most focus. Um, for instance, uh, there there was a, a lot of existing wallpaper on the walls. There was eleven or twelve different layers. And as we were taking those off for the restoration, um, we, we sent them off to the Smithsonian and had an archivist there help us date the wallpaper that was actually on the walls in eighteen. 1855, based on, on the type of paper, the type of paste, the color patterns of the time, uh, layer seven was the one that was identified as being here in 1855. And it's that wallpaper that we had reproduced and is on the walls today. And once you realize that that's the environment, once that went on the walls and that's the environment that the, uh, the, the founders uh, uh, held held their, their conversations about the fraternity on, it really begins to come alive, the story of the founding. Uh, other things, we, we tore down or tore off uh, several subfloors and got down. That room now has the original oak floor that was in there from when the building was built originally in the early 1820s. So, and it's been through a lot of a, a lot of different transformations over time, as you can 
can imagine. Um, it was a tavern at one time where the rooms that, that, that housed the, uh, the, the founders, uh, Caldwell and Runkle, were at, it was actually a storeroom for the tavern. And you can see today the trap door in the floor where goods and, and uh, supplies were stored for the tavern. Another original piece of the founding site and of the room where Caldwell and uh, uh, Runkle lived is the, if you look over to the, the door to the entrance, it has the original lock set on there. And you know that if you touch that, you're touching a lock set that each one of our founders at some point in their lives. Can you talk about the uh, the relationships of the founders that lived here, Runkle and Caldwell, and uh, how they, I guess, came together to live here in this space? I would start with, with the other gentleman that lived in the building. Uh, the, the front room, which is now the museum, uh, was uh, occupied by one James Beard. And, and James was a sophomore, and uh, Cyrus Dickey lived across the hall. Both James and Cyrus were Deeks. And hence, when, when both obviously Runkle and Caldwell were also Deeks, although after the, the split in February of 1855, both Beard and Dickey remained friends with, with, uh, with the founders, if you will. And one of the most uh, interesting aspects, uh, Beard was a graphic artist, an illustrator, and he lent Lockwood and Runkle, the table by which they designed the badge on. They, they, they moved their, this table up to the window on the west side, and that's where our badge was created. And uh, that relationship, I know, extended well beyond the, the graduating years. Uh, were any of the meetings or any of that sort of thing that needed to take place here in this site that we know of? Yeah, as far as far as the the, the notes of, of the individual meetings and where they were held, they were held all over. We can only assume that there were some meetings held here in the um, um, in in the room of, of Uncle and Caldwell. Well, we know one meeting. Yes, the meeting. The meeting. Yes. June 28, 1855, uh, it was in that room. The badges had arrived from Cincinnati and they, they all made that pledge before they, they pinned those badges on that day in that room. Let's talk a little bit about the historical initiative. I know that that was a, a passion project of yours and uh, when it began in 2005 and there've been so many artifacts and documents that we had at headquarters, hundreds of thousands of things that have been processed and scanned in at that, at that time. Uh, can, you, can you walk us through the importance of what the historical initiative has provided us well, today? Well, well, first of all, the, 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 the roots of the historical initiative and the, the impetus to go forward could not have happened without uh, the Sigma Chi Foundation and, and people like Henry Durham, who was instrumental in, in, in providing funds for us to be able to begin doing uh, several different things. First of all, we, we, we never really had a full-time archivist at that time. And so that, that was one of my goals, was trying to, trying to bring aboard somebody that can at least pay attention to what, what's going on. Um, and it was, it was really interesting in my meetings with, with uh, past Grand Consul Doug Carlson. We would meet at headquarters and there, there, was, there was precious stuff that we know we needed to preserve that we didn't want walking away because a lot of the stuff that Nate writes about we've had in our archives at one time we no longer have 
And, and so the idea was, let's get a process in place that allows us to, to archive, allows us to, to, to catalog and, and, uh, and, and, and say thank you to the brothers that donate stuff. I mean, at the time, nobody was really even writing thank you letters to, to donors of badges and things like that. And, and so uh, we were fortunate enough to find uh, Brother Noah uh, Phelps, uh, who was not a SIG at the time, uh, but uh, due to his, his, his constant love for our fraternity and brotherhood and, and his uh, passion for school and education, you know, you know, you have a Sigma Chi, uh, you know, straight from the heart. And uh, he was initiated and, uh, and he's still very much involved with, with the whole historical initiative. Um, and it's, it's, it's important, I think, that, that we preserve our history in a manner that, that, that is relevant to undergraduates today. And that's why, that's why the, the, the Sigma Chi Codex, uh, scanning in all the, the, the issues of, of everything from the Sigma Chi Quarterly and the Bulletin to the magazine, dating all the way back from its beginnings in the late 1800s, um, that, that's all been done. And uh, there, there's still a wealth of, of artifacts and, and, and documents that need that same treatment. Uh, but gradually, we, we are getting there. Were there any discoveries or things that you learned in that process that surprised you or things that really stood out to you uh, as far as... Uh, Wow, this is just some eye-opening Sigma Chi-related materials. <laughs> well, let's turn back to the uh, to the restoration of the exterior of the founding site. Okay, one of the one of the things that we we discovered in the actual building itself in the attic were the original wooden shutters that were on the building. And in order to bring it back to its, its, its early age, we, we had a local woodworker replicate those shutters. And, and that's what you see on the exterior of the building today. Um, it was really interesting to see how the, the, the building itself was added onto over the years. And now where you um, uh, come into the founding site uh, was actually a street. At, at one time, and it's, it, it's, it was a, a nice addition done in 2017 uh, after the, the remaining north part of the building um, was raised due to um, dilapidated conditions and things like that. But uh, yeah, there, there, there's, you, you find things like that all the time through, throughout um, these, uh, these discoveries. You know, it, and, and sometimes it's not even about uh, finding something that, that somebody gave a long time ago. It's, it's somebody that presents you with something. Um, a memorable story, the, the price badge. Uh, when I was historian, I was called by a relative of, of, of Price. He wanted to meet with me so he could hand me his badge um, with a story, with provenance. And, and, and to me, that kind of thing is so important. And then Brother uh, Kadena, current grand historian, later found a picture of Brother Price with that badge on eBay and actually purchased it from the 1870s. It's a phenomenal story of how things can come together if you look hard enough. Uh, let's talk about a Sigma Chi chapter or an alumni or an undergrad. They come to you know, Southwest Ohio. They're on their way to workshop or, or on their way to headquarters or anywhere. Just come to this area. 
there's a wealth of Sigma Chi history and knowledge here. Oh. Outside of the founding site, you've got two founders monuments. There's Samuel Clark's monument. There's a lot of really cool stuff here. Um, what would you say to a brother that wanted to visit here and how could they uh, see these things? Well, uh, the Monuments and Memorials Commission, the founding site is part of that, as well as each of the, the, the monuments that you mentioned. Uh, founder uh, Scobie's buried in Greenwood Cemetery, not too far from here in Hamilton, uh, as well as uh, Founder Jordan down in Spring Grove in Cincinnati. Um, and then if you visit the founding site, make, pay particular attention to the tombstone that's in the museum portion. It is the original Samuel Clark tombstone from 1856, October. Sam Clark was the first Sigma Chi to unlock the doors to the chapter eternal. And you know, if you, if you, in that cemetery, you can go visit his grave and, and see the replica that was put in in 91 of the stone that's actually in the founding site. And you recognize that when you're standing there, you're also in another spot where all seven founders stood at one time. So amazing. Um, Eric, thank you so much for your time and being one of our inaugural guests on the Sigma Chi podcast. I've learned a lot today talking with you. And uh, uh, folks, we highly encourage you to visit our new Sigma Chi history website, sigmachi.org slash history. Um, we're going to have a 3D scan that was done today of the founding site. So if you can't visit the founding site or you can never come to Oxford, you can walk through, see everything in a 3D lens. And we do the same thing of our museum in Evanston. So again, thank you so much. As Sigma Chi's, we share common values, experiences, and a lifelong commitment to our great fraternity. Choosing to be a life loyal SIG is about supporting our fraternity today. A choice to help carry our incredible values and experiences into the future. Choosing to be a life loyal is a small way to have a big impact. Because your annual giving, at all levels, funds all of the training and support provided to our young men. Our young brothers expect more of themselves, and collectively, as life loyal SIGs, we will help them deliver. Raise your hand and show your support for today's Sigma Chi, for today's young men, and our collective work to expect more of Sigma Chi. Visit sigmachi.org slash lifeloyal and choose to be a life loyal SIG today. And now we begin our podcast series, SIGs in Washington, D.C., with significant SIG James V. Grimaldi. Brother Grimaldi has had an expansive journalism career upon graduation from the University of Missouri at Columbia, where he was, fun fact, in Sigma Chi at the same time as another significant SIG, Brad Pitt. Grimaldi joined the Washington Post in 2000, focusing on accountability stories about Congress, politicians, presidential campaigns, and much more. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting in 2006 for his work on the Jack Abramoff lobbying scandal. He later joined the Wall Street Journal and has been a night bag of hot fellow in business journalism, as well as a Ferris professor of journalism at Princeton. Without further ado, Brother James Grimaldi. Walk me through your Sigma Chi experience and uh, what was what was it like uh, you know, going through recruitment and becoming a member of our fraternity? Yeah, well, I was a legacy, so my older brother was a Sigma Chi, and that's how I landed there. Uh, might not have even predicted that that would have happened, but, you know, it ended up being a, a very positive experience for me, especially, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, I was able to um, find a, another journalist who was also in the Zai Zai chapter, and he became a, almost a lifelong mentor 
mentor for me in terms of my uh, journalism career. So um, yeah, that's that's basically how I landed there. Uh, what were some of the values and uh, experiences in Sigma Chi from our fraternity that have meant the most to you? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think being uh, you know a, a, a person of good character, you know, uh, uh, with a deep sense of personal responsibility, or really sort of the I think the key things that I look to. And I'm a investigative journalist, so I investigate people who maybe fall short of that particular standard. So it's always good to be able to try to uphold that standard to the best that you possibly can. Uh, I always thought those values were ones that um, that uh, I think meant meant probably the most to me. And of course, just the brotherhood. You know, I've I've got uh, friends that I've stayed in touch with from my pledge class, and um, and you know, with digital technology now, you can uh, do extended you know chats on your phone or what have you that allow you to sort of uh, regain some of those connections you might have lost since you know we've all spread to different states around the country. Can you walk us? Can you walk me through your career and uh, kind of what's led what's led you to this point? Yeah. So my first job out of college was uh, at uh, being uh, essentially the first job was a police reporter at the San Diego Tribune, which was an afternoon newspaper published in San Diego, and then I moved north of there to the Orange County Register for I worked for more than a decade. Uh, during that period, I went back to school for a year at Columbia University where I studied business and economics journalism uh, and, and gained a degree. And then they sent me to Washington, which is how I landed here about 25 years ago. I was the Washington correspondent for the Orange County Register for three years and then moved over to the Washington Bureau of the Seattle Times where I covered the Microsoft antitrust trial. And that uh, basically is what landed me a job at the Washington Post because it was a big national uh, story and I was uh, doing a, a pretty good job and they had an opening for that. So I worked for the uh, for the uh, Washington Post for more than a decade uh, and that's where I won my Pulitzer Prize investigating uh, the lobbyist Jack Abramoff. I had been interested in the intersection of business and politics for a long time and lobbying is sort of at, right at the crosshairs of those two particular industries. Uh, and then and that's become sort of an area of specialty. And then about six years ago, I moved over to the Wall Street Journal, which is a newspaper that I have admired for all of my career and really kind of proud to be uh, part of the extensive Washington Bureau we have here in Washington, D.C. Can you kind of walk me through your story? And, uh, and what it was like to, to, to be honored with such a, an esteemed award that means so much to journalists? Yeah, well, uh, the story began with a tip to one of my colleagues, Sue Schmidt, and she had done some stories in 2004, but she knew that it was a much broader scheme. And there were uh, her original stories had resulted in some congressional as well as um, federal investigations. So we leapt in, and I was able to find really uh, one of the first illegal schemes that we published, which was essentially a bribe that was paid uh, in exchange for some uh, benefits that were done. It was uh, uh, it was received by the House Majority Leader at the time, uh, who went on a trip to Scotland. And, it, and when he came back, he uh, and some of his staff members uh, helped kill a particular bill that Jack Abramoff did not like. His clients wanted killed. It was a gambling bill that would have regulated gambling, and he had these gambling tribes as clients. And so we did a series of eight or ten stories that ran in 2005, and uh, 
during that year while we were working on it, Jack Abramoff was arrested, indicted, and convicted, uh, and uh, uh, it, it sort of blew up right in the middle of our investigation. So we, we uh, I think the timing of that, part of it was we exposed a lot of it that allowed the uh, many of the uh, investigators to be able to sort through uh, the, the millions, thousands of pieces of, uh, of uh, documents that they had. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, winning the award obviously is an honor of a, of a, a career, if not a lifetime. Uh, if there's, is there any advice or anything that you would give to, to a young Sigma Chi, whether it's an undergraduate or someone that's just just wrapped their uh, degree and get ready to move into a professional field? What are some, uh, what's any advice or lessons that you could impart on this young Sigma Chi? Yeah, well, I think if you stick to, you know, the standards of the fraternity, they will serve you well, and not only as you're leaving the, the college life, but as you sort of proceed in the in the in the greater world, you know, if you're if you're if you're being a person of uh, a deep personal responsibility, you're going to be able to, uh, I think, succeed because people will recognize that in you. And then I would also, you know, stay in touch with your fraternity brothers because those kinds of friendships are something that will last a lifetime and will bring bring you uh, a lot of reward. And uh, as you you know, as you're going through good times and bad throughout your career and your life. Significant Sig Ruben Gallego is the U.S. Representative for Arizona's 7th Congressional District. He previously served as a member of the Arizona State House prior to his 2014 midterm congressional election. Born in Chicago, Gallego is a first-generation American raised by a single mother along with his three sisters. He graduated from Evergreen Park High School prior to attending Harvard, where he became a Sigma Chi. After college, Brother Gallego joined the Marines, where he served from 2000 to 2006, earning the rank of corporal. The desire to help fellow veterans motivated Gallego to get involved in politics. He presently serves on the House Committees on Armed Services and Natural Resources. And in June, Brother Gallego introduced the Bipartisan College Freedom of Association Act in response to Harvard sanctions that bars members of single-gender final clubs, fraternities, and sororities from holding any leadership positions in recognized student groups, varsity athletic teams retaining endorsements for prestigious fellowships on campus. The bill would prevent universities from penalizing students who are members of single-gender organizations, whether or not the groups are officially recognized. Our interview took place approximately one month before the bill was introduced, and Gallego began by discussing the importance Sigma Chi had on his Harvard experience. You know, I think Harvard uh, would not have been a great experience uh, for me if it wasn't because uh, I joined uh, my chapter. Uh, you know, it's a very difficult campus. Uh, you know, a lot of people already come with their own friendship circles. They all come from the same prep schools. You know, they've known each other, went to the same summer camp. I didn't know anybody uh, at Harvard. I came from a working class area, um, you know, and you know, for me, it was great to meet these group of guys that were open, that came from all walks of life, that, uh, you know, were middle class and, and you know, really showed me what, you know, true friendship is. And uh, honestly, I think I probably would have dropped out of Harvard if I hadn't actually joined Sigma Chi. What were some of the, the values and lessons that you learned through Sigma Chi that have been the most important to you throughout your career, especially in your career in public service? Uh, really, I think what I learned the most among um, my brothers is you know, acceptance, learning how to 
be with other people that you may not agree with that come from different backgrounds, temperaments, talents, and convictions. And, um, you know, it really has helped me in politics because you have to deal with a lot of people, some people on the left, some people on the right of the political spectrum from different races, different backgrounds. And if you learn, you know, how to work, uh, you know, with everybody, uh, when you're operating in a democracy like this, you're going to be successful. What, what were some of the surreal things uh, when you first stepped in into the Capitol and you began you know, representing your district? For me, it, it, you know, it was surreal just being in, in Congress. Like kids like me aren't supposed to even make it to college, period. And the fact that I went, you know, got, you know was lucky enough to go to a good college, but then also got to be a member of Congress. It would, that itself was, was surreal. Um, I guess like some of the craziest things, probably the most surreal moment is when I was, uh, you know, serving the United States Marine Corps. I was very uh, lucky to do that. I took my fire team to 8th and I uh, to meet with the uh, general of the Commandant of the Marine Corps because he had this welcome reception for Marines that are, that were members of country that were in the Marine Corps. Uh, and I took, um, I took my fire team and, you know, for full disclosure, I was actually the lowest ranking member on my fire team, right? So it was the, it's called a system machine gunner. Um, and they, uh, you know, I brought my guys, uh, and they were just astounded and shocked to see all these generals saluting me. And they were like, you know, they, don't you know, they, they used to be a Lance Corporal. I'm like, yes, of course they know. But right now, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I, I guess I was technically in charge of them being on the armed services committee and for, for, to see their reaction and to kind of think back about like, where I came from in terms of the military, it was, it was very surreal. Um, one of the things, as you know, is part of the case there at Harvard mm-hmm. with the with the single sex organization. Can you can you talk about your thoughts on that and uh, what that means? You know, obviously, it's your alma mater, but also the fraternity. Yeah, I think Harvard's in the wrong. Uh, first of all, it's not just a single sex issue. I think it's a freedom association issue. Uh, every student, uh, whether uh, you know I agree or, or disagree with what they decide to do, has a right to associate with whoever they want uh, off campus. Uh, and, you know, Harvard is trying to affect the lives of students that are organizing themselves uh, in uh, off-campus uh, activities. And I think it is really, uh, again, it goes against the idea of, of a liberal college education, right, where you should be allowed to explore and think uh, and learn for yourself. And so what Harvard is doing, I think, is really anti-Harvard uh, in, in every sense uh, of the word. Uh, and, you know, on a an actual basis, what it means. I think for my fraternity, uh, it has become more difficult. Uh, I know my chapter uh, has had problems recruiting uh, and not because people don't want to join, but they're afraid that they're going to get punished by uh, the university. Ironically enough, the way that they're doing is they're stopping potential leaders uh, of the university from joining a great leadership organization like Sigma Chi by punishing them, by not allowing them to apply for other leadership positions. It's just, it's, it's, it's something that I think is uh, some weird type of engineering that is not actually going to end up being fruitful and doesn't actually help the student body. Thank you to Brother Diego for taking the time to speak with us. Back in May, uh, the congressmen certainly have busy schedules when they're in session. Uh, for more information on the Harvard lawsuits, as well as the collegiate Freedom of Association Act, please visit StandUpToHarvard.org, as well as the Fraternity and Sorority Political Action Committee, FSPAC.org. Again, thanks everyone for listening to our second episode of the Sigma Chi Podcast. We'll be back with you soon. Thank you for listening to the Sigma Chi Podcast. 
For more information on Sigma Chi, visit our new website, www.sigmachi.org, or visit us on Twitter and Instagram at Sigma Chi. Feedback or questions about this month's episode? Send comments via email to podcast at sigmachi.org.